children's church preschoolers, you are now dismissed to a wonderful, wonderful class waiting for you. Ah, it's so fun to see all these little ones, isn't it? Isn't that great, church, to see all these young lives? That is so fun. Well, in our calendar, we would call it Good Friday. But for Caiaphas, the high priest that year, it was anything but good. Caiaphas, uh, well, he was having a bad day. He was not having a day that he had planned on that morning. When he got up that morning, he thought it was going to be a great day. Jerusalem was teeming with pilgrims. And they were all coming for the, the festival of Passover, the most exciting festival of the year on the Jewish calendar. Jerusalem pulsated with people. And that meant money in Caiaphas' pocket. His well-oiled machine in the temple was going to take every shekel out of the pocket of every pilgrim. They were going to walk in and find all these silly little rules that would make them have to purchase something from the temple square in order to celebrate Passover the temple prescribed way at inflated prices and the shekels would come tumbling in and eventually make it to his pocket. Archaeologists have found some of the old high priest's homes and they were palatial. They were magnificent. Why? Because they caught a piece of the take. The temple industrial complex was a well-oiled machine. And what made it even better? This was that, that crazy, rebellious rabbi. At 9 a.m., Caiaphas saw him nailed to the cross. This guy who had taken his sandal and thrown it into the gears of this well-oiled machine and had grinded it to a halt, who had cried out about corruption and said, you've taken my father's house and turned it into a den of thieves and it's supposed to be a house of prayer. We got rid of him. And then, and then, everything ground to a halt. Because at 12 o'clock, darkness came. Last week we talked about some of the ways that it could have been. It could have been an eclipse. It could have been Loess, which was a, a dirt-based covering that would have caused everyone to run for cover. We talked about it. it could have been clouds, but it was a darkness and a darkness that you could feel. And that caused everything to grind to a halt. And when it grinds to a halt, no money is being made. Now Caiaphas is scared. Three o'clock's coming. And if this darkness stays, there's no Passover. If this darkness stays, 
There's no money. You see, in the Jewish calendar, there were two days that the temple made big bucks for Caiaphas. One was the Day of Atonement. Every Jewish person had to come and, and, and make atonement for their sin. And whether it was through the selling of doves or selling of sheep, they had to buy at the temple. But the other day, that was just as big, it was kind of like a combination of Christmas and, and July 4th put together for the Jewish nation. It was a time of intense celebration was this idea of Passover. And so the money would flow. Now, you and I, we, we don't quite get this Passover thing, so let me, let me go back in time with you and just give you a little bit of history, if you, if you don't mind. I know some of you already know this, and I, I'm just going to be refreshing, but, but some of you, this may be brand new. You see, way back in the time of the patriarchs, there was a patriarch by the name of Jacob, and he had a son named Joseph. Now, Joseph had 11 brothers. His brothers didn't get along with him. And so they wanted to kill him. But one of the brothers said, hey, we don't want to kill our brother. Let's just sell him as a slave to Egypt. And so he ends up going to Egypt. He's a slave there. He's, through a series of God, divine intervention, through a series of hardship, becomes the second most powerful man in Egypt. And a horrible famine comes, and he saves Egypt. And guess what? This family that tried to kill him comes to Egypt to buy food. They discover that, lo and behold, Joseph's alive. And Joseph says, hey, come on down. And so this whole family moves to Egypt. Well, in the beginning, it was good. Until Joseph dies. Then it wasn't as good. And the more the years pass, the more the years go, pretty soon they forget. 400 years pass. And what happens is, Joseph is forgotten. The new Pharaoh takes place. The new Pharaoh comes up and he, he just sees there's all these people and they're a threat. They might try to, to rebel. They might try to do something, and I better stomp on them and let them know who's in charge. And so he makes them slaves. And then he gets this wonderful idea, let me get rid of some of the guys. And so anytime a baby boy is born, he takes the life of that baby boy. And a baby boy is born by the name of Moses. And Moses is spared. In fact, Moses ends up growing up in Pharaoh's house. Doesn't God have a sense of humor? And then, then, Moses is sent to the wilderness for 40 years so God can put him through school. Hey, you think, you know, 12 years of schooling plus college plus whatever else is long. God's school was 40 years, kids. He puts them through 40 years of schooling, brings them back. 
And then we have the ultimate smackdown. The ultimate mano imano. In this corner, Yahweh. In this corner, the gods of Egypt. And the ten plagues come. Each plague was one of the gods of Egypt. Each plague was showing that God was the God over Egypt. That God could handle the gods of Egypt without any problem. The last plague, the last plague was the plague of the angel of death, the angel who would take the life of the firstborn male child. Justice for what Pharaoh had done. Only, notice how God's justice is merciful. Where Pharaoh wiped out every male child, God not only limited it in scope to the firstborn, but then He provided a way out. He provided a way out. He said, because sin is costly, because sin is wrong, you're going to have to take a little innocent lamb and that little lamb is going to have to die. But you're going to take that lamb and you're going to take its blood. And you're going to take a hyssop branch. Remember that. That's going to come back to haunt us. You're going to take a hyssop branch and you're going to take that blood and you're going to put it on the top of the door. You're going to put it on both sides. And when the angel of death comes and it sees the blood, it will pass over, it will ignore, it will say this house is covered, this house is protected. Now get this, everyone in Egypt could have participated, even Pharaoh. That's called mercy, folks. God extended it to everyone. And the night came. And what happened was some did and some didn't. And those who didn't had their hearts broken at the loss of their firstborn. But what a picture that was that there would be a God who would send His only begotten Son and not spare Him from the angel of death, but allow Him to step into our place like that innocent lamb. Now, that was the birth of the nation. Egypt said, get out of here. Leave. We don't want you anymore. You're too much problem for us. So Israel is born. And that's why they celebrated every year Passover. But I'm going to ask all you resident Bible scholars a question. We know the tenth plague was the plague of the angel of death. What was the ninth plague? Anyone? 
I'm not going to call on anybody. No. Darkness. Darkness. In fact, it says in Exodus that Moses goes out and he, he pronounces for darkness to fall. And it says this very statement. It was a darkness you could feel. Did you catch that? What happens on the cross from 12 to 3? Darkness. It's as if the Father is saying, remember the plagues? You remember the Passover? Well, here's the darkness. Here's the ninth plague all over again. It's a darkness you can feel. It's a darkness you can taste. And fear grips. And right about 3 o'clock, it starts lifting. Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? He will cry out three more times in rapid fire succession. And the next thing he cries out is found in John chapter 19. If you have your Bibles, John chapter 19, starting in verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that now all was finished, said to fulfill the Scripture, I thirst. This is very telling. Everything that Jesus has cried out for up to this point has been focused outward. This is the first time He cries out for Himself. This is the first time He cries for Himself. Some say the previous cry, my God, my God, shows His spiritual exhaustion. And this cry in here shows His human exhaustion. And why shouldn't it? He hasn't slept in two days. You recall, He was taken from the garden and, and taken to kangaroo court, to kangaroo court, to kangaroo court. He was beaten. He was mocked. He was whipped. He had a crown of thorns placed on His head. He had to carry a cross up a hill. He was crucified. He has been on the cross now for six hours. He has been fighting for His breath. Why wouldn't He be thirsty? But I want you to let this sink in. This is the Maker of heaven and earth. This is the Creator of all things. Why would the Lord of glory have parched, cracked lips? Why would the King of kings have to cry, I thirst? It doesn't make sense. But why would the King of glory come as a child, grow as a boy, become a man, no hunger and cold and thirsty and sleeplessness and rejection and pain? Why would He experience emotions and weakness and weep and sweat and bleed? I mean, 
This is the one who made demons run and the wind and the rain had to obey. He's the one who caused the blind to see, the lame to walk, the deaf to hear. He did so many things that John said that if he tried to write it all down, the world could not contain the books that would be needed to record everything that he did. So why would he become so human? Great question. At the time that John penned this, there was a group of people called the Gnostics. The Gnostics had this wonderful belief. They believed that Jesus was kind of like a hologram. He was just a spirit. He wasn't really real. He just looked real. And when they put him on the cross, it was really a spirit on the cross. And he just kind of played along, played the part. But he didn't really suffer. He didn't really hurt. He didn't really die. He was just a spirit. Why? Because spirit in their world was good. And humanity, humanness, the body was evil. In fact, they believe that Jesus never even left a footprint in the sand when he walked. So how could he suffer? But friends, if this were true, if this were true, this Jesus would be no use to you or I. For when we suffer, it's real, isn't it? When we die, it's real, isn't it? For Jesus, when he says, I thirst, he is saying, I am real. I am one of you and it's so important that he is if you have your bibles turn with me to hebrews chapter 2 starting in verse 9 listen as the writer of hebrews tells us why it's important but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels namely jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering. Did you catch that? The suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In other words, he really died. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation. In other words, he who is God, he who, is this, who created all things, the one who is going to create salvation, was made perfect. In other words, was made complete through suffering. For he sanctifies, and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, I behold and the children God has given me. In other words, because of the suffering and death of Jesus Christ, we can become the children of God is what he is saying. But go on to verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood. In other words, because we're flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death 
he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those through fear of death who are subject to lifelong slavery. For surely is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Did you catch that? Drop down or keep going. Therefore, he is made to be like his brothers in every respect. In other words, he became just like us so that he might be for the sins of the, whoops, might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. What it is saying is he had to become like us. He had to be real. He had to be human. He had to take on us. Because if he didn't, he couldn't help us. And when he cries out, I thirst, he is proving that he is one of us. And because of that, he can do for us what no one else can do. He can save us. Back to John 19. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, Did you catch that word? Did you catch that? He knew that all was finished. He says, I thirst. I thirst. Did you know he had already been offered something to drink earlier? Earlier when they had put him on the cross? They offered him something to drink and he turns it down. Why? Because his work hadn't been finished. What they had offered him was, it was a wine, but it was a wine mixed with myrrh. Myrrh was for the purpose of deadening the pain. Oh, they were being nice to him. Oh, no, 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 no. Nice had nothing to do with it. You see, they offered him myrrh to make their job easier. When he was on the cross, and anyone else who was on the cross, they wanted them off as fast as possible because this was a holy day. Normally, they could last on the cross two or three days. But they didn't want that to happen this day. They wanted it over, so they gave him myrrh. And the idea of crucifixion is you you suffocate. And you have to keep pulling yourself up to breathe. So by adding myrrh to it, the myrrh plus the pain would cause you to go unconscious. And when you would go unconscious, then you would die. Jesus refused it. Jesus refused it. Why? Because he hadn't finished his work. He hadn't forgiven those who crucified him. He hadn't promised the thief that today he would be with them in paradise. He doesn't take the wine until he secures his mother's future and creates a new relationship for her while distancing himself so that he may not be her son but her savior. He now is finished with his work of atonement. For on the cross, nearly three hours, he has borne the weight of our sin. He has atoned for our sin. That is, he made complete payment for the cleansing and removal of our sin. 
And when this is completed, and when he feels the separation of fellowship between him and his father, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And he is abandoned so that we will never have to be abandoned. And so now with his work done, he can cry out, I thirst. Why? Because he's done all that he has needed to do. Like an athlete crossing a finish line, he can take a moment and focus on his needs. For the race is over. And he is won. Notice what else it says. To fulfill the Scriptures. Why? Why in the midst of his suffering would he have to fulfill the Scripture, why would that be on his mind? And, and, and it's because to prove to those around and to us today that he is God in the flesh, that he is the long-awaited Messiah. There are 362 specific prophecies in Scripture concerning Jesus. 362. The chances of those coming true in one person is similar to a person winning the Powerball and the Mega Millions while being hit by lightning. In fact, Victor Publishing a few years back said, if you can just fulfill half of them, if you can just do half of them, 180th, we'll give you $1,000 no one has ever collected. You know, there's those, though, that say, oh, Jesus, oh, he's, he's tricky. He's tricky. He's manipulating it. You see, Jesus lived his life in such a way that he would manipulate every one of those, those prophecies so, so you would think that it was him, but it really wasn't. But, oh, friends, there were so many that he couldn't touch. For example, Micah 5.2 tells us where he'd be born. Jesus couldn't control that. Daniel 9.25 tells us the time of his birth. Jesus couldn't control that. I, I don't see him going, okay, Mary, it's now. Isaiah 7.14 tells us the manner of his birth. Psalm 22.16 tells us the manner of his death. It's a prophecy given hundreds of years before crucifixion was invented, but it talks about crucifixion. Psalm 22.15, he talks about his strength being dried up like a pot sheared and his tongue sticking to his jaw, that he's laid into the dust of death. Psalm 69.21 says that he would cry out for my thirst and they gave me sour wine to drink. A direct fulfillment of prophecy right here. Psalm 41.9 predicts the betrayal of Judas. Psalm 31.11, that his disciples will abandon him. Psalm 35.11, that there will be false testimony against him. Psalm 109.25, that he'll be mocked by the spectators. Psalm 22.7 and 8, that he'll be taunted by the soldiers. Psalm 22.18, that his robe would be gambled for. Isaiah 53.7, that he will be silent before his accusers. Isaiah 53.9, that he'll be found innocent. Isaiah 53.12, that he will pray for the forgiveness of those who hurt him. That Isaiah 53.9, that he will be buried in a rich man's tomb that has been borrowed. Isaiah 31.5, or excuse me, Psalm 31.5, that he yields up his spirit. 
and Psalm 34, 20, that none of his bones will be broken. You see, Jesus shows that he is the Messiah. He is the one who he says he is. And he calls out to those who will listen, I am the one, come to me. I am lifted up so you may be drawn to me. Even in this request for himself, he's reaching out to others. Let's go back to the Scriptures. After this, Jesus, knowing that it was all now finished and to fulfill Scripture, says, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch. Hyssop. Why hyssop? Because it's a picture. You see, the greatest deliverance up to this point was the deliverance of the people of Israel from Egypt. Jesus is going to show the greatest deliverance of the people of the world from sin. And then when they held it up to his mouth, Jesus received the sour wine. This sour wine is cheap. It's mostly water. It has a vinegary taste. The Romans provided it for their soldiers. It was to keep them hydrated and happy. And so Jesus cries out. He's completed His task. He wants to fulfill the Scripture. And the Roman soldier, not realizing it, he takes a branch of hyssop, a branch about 18 inches long, and he puts the sponge on it. And he puts it up to the mouth of Jesus. Remember the blood at the top and the blood at each side with the hyssop. We have blood from the crown of thorns. We have blood from the hands. The picture is there. And it says Jesus drinks. And he drinks deeply. But one more thing. This branch is only 18 inches. It's not very long. About here to here. That's all it is. You know, we often have this picture of Jesus towering on this high, high, high cross. And, you know, you have to take a spear and put it up because it's so high. The way they did crucifixion was they kept them just barely above eye height. That was so that they would have to suffer. It was easier to abuse them. It was easier to attack and harass the victim. I like what Diedrich Bonhoeffer wrote. He says this, God allows himself to be edged out of the world and onto a cross. God is weak and powerless in the world and it is exactly the way, the only way in which he can be with us and help us Only a suffering God can help. Did you get that? Only a suffering God could help us. Only a suffering God can save us. And suffer and save us He did. But if He suffered, let us not be surprised when we suffer as well. He suffered for us and He suffers with us. 
He understands our suffering. He knows what it means to thirst. He brings God to all who suffer in him. The scourged Jesus, crowned with thorns, brings healing to all who are his. The rejected Jesus stands with his people who have felt lost in this world. The dying Jesus brings life and hope to us who are dying. The resurrected Jesus brings hope and eternal life to you and I who face despair. Because he says, I am thirsty, he is one of us. He is one of us with us and he makes it possible for us to be one with him for all eternity and because of this we can suffer for him when he asks because we understand that when we go through suffering he's right there beside us her name is gladys the beginning of World War II, she was a missionary to China, and there's a movie that was made about her called The Inn of the Sixth Happiness, Sixth Happiness. And she was suffering terribly during a journey across the mountains of China in order to bring a hundred orphans to safety. These orphans ranged in age from four to 15 years old. They were slated to die because of the Japanese invasion. But she took them and she took them across the mountain range in faithful obedience to God, but it was not without a cost. She had been captured one time by the Japanese and they beat her mercilessly. So when she arrived with the orphans to the place of safety, she was gravely ill and almost delirious. She had internal injuries from the beating. And in the mission compound, they found out that she had uh, typhoid, pneumonia, malnutrition, shock, fatigue fatigue and fever well Gladys pulled through and she learned more about Christ through her suffering she learned to choose Christ over everything else that life had to offer and so much so that there was a man who fell in love with her and he he came to visit her and he wanted her to marry him and she he wanted her to to leave this country and leave this suffering and go with him and she turned him down because she knew she had been called to be among the orphans of China. So she went down to the train station to this man she loved and she kissed him goodbye and they would never meet again. And she would serve the orphans of China until her death with many more hardships and much more suffering. Because she knew God was with her. And I know what some of you are thinking. But Pastor Greg, she chose that. She chose that. She's like those disciples in the book of Acts. They get beaten and they celebrate because they were found worthy to be beaten with Christ. They chose their suffering. I didn't choose the suffering I'm going through. Greg, I didn't choose that. Then I'd have you talk to Ken. Ken was my elder. At my last church, Ken, uh, Ken was assigned to work with me. 
that sometimes they would assign two elders to work with me because I was that much of a problem. And Ken had been saved later in life. He'd been an Air Force man. Met his wife there. Neither one were Christians. They were living pretty, pretty rough lives. They'd met Jesus. They'd come to Christ. They had two wonderful children. Ken is, was an engineer at Boston Scientific. Um, picture of fitness. Picture of fitness. And, and he loved to run those K things. You know? 5Ks and 3Ks and 10Ks and 12Ks. You know, what are those sick people? to do it and one day about three years ago he didn't like his time and he didn't like how his arm was feeling and he knew something was wrong so he went down to the doctor and the doctor looked at him and the doctor said Ken I've got some bad news you have Lou Gehrig's disease or ALS ALS is a death sentence. That's what it is. Most people, once they're diagnosed, live six months. Ken wanted to see his kids graduate. He saw, he lived two years, saw his daughter graduate. This, he has son is in the engineering school at the U of M. And you may have heard about Ken in the paper or on the news, how a dying man was granted the opportunity to see his kid graduate, how the president of the U did, held a special graduation in his home. Perhaps you've seen that. If not, I would encourage you to go onto the website, either if you're a friend of mine on Facebook, I've got it on my Facebook page, or go to the Star Tribune. They have a wonderful article about that. The doctor came to Ken and said, Ken, you, you, you've lasted almost three years. And, uh, but you're not going to make it to your son's graduation. And so that's why the you stepped in and did this wonderful thing. I had Ken about two years ago come in and he had had to move into his wheelchair and I had him come in to speak to a crowd about this size. And I had him speak on suffering. And Ken said, you know, we all are going to suffer. The question is, how are you going to suffer? And are you going to suffer alone? And because of Jesus Christ, he goes, I don't have to suffer alone. Because of what he did on the cross, he enters into my suffering. I wondered at that moment, will Ken hold on to this? Well, when I watched the video, I found out my answer. You see, I, I found out they were going to do it because my dentist was invited to that 
that event and, and he said, I'm moving your dental time and since he has sharp pokey things and he's putting it in my mouth, I do whatever he tells me. And I, I watched it. And here's what, what Ken says. God is good. God has a plan. And I have to be faithful. Why can he say that? Because when Jesus was on the cross suffering, he entered into Ken's suffering. And he is walking with Ken every step of the way. I thirst. I identify with you. I fulfill Scripture. I suffer with you. You are never alone. Father, there are many of us who are suffering right now and we might feel alone. But Jesus understands. He knows what we're going through. And He's walking beside us. We may not realize that, Father, and so I would ask for those who don't realize it that You'd open their heart and open their eyes so they can see it and and that they can hang on to the truth even if they don't always feel it. But Father, thank You for even the suffering of Jesus. Thank You for His willingness to be fully human so that He could stand in our place. And I thank You for this in Jesus' name. Amen.